I wanted to build something that was going to be stable that allowed us to work on the product itself. That's what led to my decision to build something very custom and very lightweight. So another decision was like, let's do some things that we know isn't going to scale. An example of that is loading almost all of your data up front and then just keeping it in memory so that once you've taken that kind of cold load hit, everything after that is basically instant. That decision, like it allows us to put an extremely fast product out there. And I think that the speed of it was like kind of our secret weapon. My name is Andrew Childs. I'm the co-founder and chief design officer of Shortcut. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Andrew Childs built the best tool to bring the flow to your software team's workflow. All this and more on Code Story. Andrew Childs doesn't have a computer science background. He grew up in Philly and is currently based in New York City with his wife and six-year-old. His first computer experience was in 1984 with a Macintosh Plus. With no internet, it was just a playground in the beginning. But on it, he was able to explore, design, and learn Pascal. He attended RISD in Rhode Island, an art school. His goal was to go into contemporary art, but he quickly realized that he didn't know anything about how to approach the art world. Throughout the program, he did learn a lot about how to think and how to look at things and how to be creative. Post that, he ran a few web design and development agencies before being pulled into the startup world. At a prior startup, the opinionated nature of project tools his team was using started to get in the way of their productivity. Not to mention, it was not possible to get a bird's eye view of direction, progress, etc. across multiple projects. During a Hack Day project, Andrew built a way to aggregate their tool into one single view. It was then that it clicked and he and his co-founder thought maybe they were onto something. This is the creation story of Shortcut. Shortcut is a collaboration product that is really built for software teams. So not just, not just engineering, not just product, but really a software team as being basically your entire R&D organization and the people that R&D collaborates with, right? So engineering, product, design, CX, sales, executive teams, right? Like we're, we're trying to build something that allows all of those different functional groups to come together and, and collaborate together on their roadmap, managing and tracking their work and documenting their work all in the same kind of system of record, source of truth, in a way that doesn't make you angry doesn't make your team angry and, and it's hard to do that because engineers are, are a grumpy group of people and very opinionated and and using b2b products is a very emotional thing right and so we're, we're trying to build something that is uh fast and delightful and it feels like it, it's it's approachable to people not just in the engineering team but everyone kind of across the the organization uh on top of that we're also trying to build something that scales with you and, and kind of allows you to scale 
from, let's say, a team of five people all the way up to, to 50 to even to 500 people. Um, and there's a whole kind of art and science to trying to, to do that. Uh, so Pivotal Tracker was the tool that we were using at our last, last company. And Pivotal Tracker was made by Pivotal Labs, which is a consultancy. And, and Tracker was a part of their package, right? Like that they were selling to, to their clients. And it, it worked well for us until it got to the point where the opinions and the, the methodology that was kind of baked into the product kind of fell apart for us. Because as soon as we had, you know, let's say 50 people, we had people working across multiple projects and really no way to get a sense, a high level sense of like what was going on. You know, fast forward to uh, the last six years, like we've heard from people coming from Trello, for example. Um, it's very easy to spin up a hundred Trello boards, but it's very difficult to have any idea what's going on across all of them. It got to the point where we just, it wasn't just the, uh, it wasn't just the cross project thing. It was, there was a lot of um, kind of issues that we were, we were facing with it. And Kurt at, at this point was the, the CTO, became the CTO and said, okay, we need to move to Jira. Jira is the industry standard tool. We exported everything, imported it into Jira immediately felt like a, an impact kind of on our, our daily working lives. It was harder to use. It was confusing. Nobody really wanted to use it. People were talking outside of the tool. And so this coincided, this, this move coincided with a hackathon that we did. And so I took it upon myself to build a effectively like a Trello-y UI on top of the Pivotal Tracker API uh, that allowed us to see kind of a, a Kanban board of multiple projects all, all kind of on the same board. It worked, and uh, we ended up actually moving the entire engineering team to <laughs> exporting everything out of Jira, importing it back into Pivotal, and using this Hackday project, um, which was crazy, crazy in hindsight. It was kind of an interesting light bulb moment. Maybe there's something, some, you know, there's an opportunity here. We kind of left it, Kurt and I left it, and we ended up talking maybe a couple months later in, in the kitchen, in the, the office, back when we had an office. And uh, we we're like, you know, if we if we back out of the Pivotal Tracker API, build our own API, we can kind of go in, in our own direction, right? This is, this is where, you know, you have to, we have to recognize the fact that this is a very competitive and crowded market. But the reality is like all of these products have opinions baked into them. And it just felt like there was nothing that really nailed it, right? Like nothing that really worked for a scaling, agile, small A, like software team. That's how we ended up leaving that company and starting, starting Shortcut. What I'd love to dive into is the is the MVP, and you kind of already set the stage of how that Hack Day product started. But I'm curious if there's another MVP after you left. So tell me about you know either one of those, whichever one you want to jump into, and and kind of give me some ideas about how long it took you to build and and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. This is an interesting subject for sure because the architecture of the the original product, the MVP. It came out of the work that we were doing at our last company, which was we like we had our own extranet, right? Like our own web app, Rails app that we were providing to our customers. But we also were building a very micro framework, 
kind of library that we were placing on travel sites. You know, a, a, a big part of my whole philosophy was like, let's build something small and kind of encapsulated and, and fast. The original framework was really like an extension of that sort of style of, of working. And the original framework was very custom, kind of MVC framework. There was a custom like collection model library. There's a event binding library that, that I wrote. There's a template library that I wrote. All of it was built basically custom, you know, purpose built for this, this product. And I was intentionally using boring, unfashionable libraries. Because like this is a pretty unique product. It's not like we're just showing lists of stuff, right? Like it's not like kind of a generic application. This is something that involves like drag and drop and there's a lot to it. And I wanted to build something that was going to be stable that allowed us to work on the product itself, right? And the, the user experience, not necessarily like spend all of our time upgrading the core library, core framework, and then all the dependencies, right? And, Around this time, like Ember was getting a lot of heat, right, for being too complicated to upgrade. Angular was like seen as this massive framework, and React was still very new. So that's what led to my decision to build something very custom and very lightweight. So another decision was like, let's do some things that we know isn't going to scale. An example of that is loading almost all of your data up front and then just keeping it in memory. So that once you've taken that kind of cold load, page load hit, like everything after that is basically instant. That decision worked in that, like it allows us to put an extremely fast product out there. And I think that the speed of it was like kind of our secret weapon and still is. You know, speed is like a feature. In my opinion, it's like a multiplier. It like impacts every single kind of business metric. It's like so that that worked, but at the same time, it also meant that you know five, six, seven years later, we're still grappling with that. It becomes obviously like a matter of scale, and like once you do scale, <laughs> uh, and you've got customers with like hundreds of thousands of stories, right? like how do you how do you manage that? How do you decide what to show, what to what to load, and all that? You touched on a couple of these already, but I want to dig into them a little more. You know, with any MVP, you got to make decisions and trade-offs. And you talked about the custom framework that you built. And then you talked about loading all the data up front. How did you go about making those decisions? And, and how did you cope with them? The reason that we went in this direction was because, for me, it's it's always much more about, like, what are you comfortable with um, versus, like, what's the cool new framework to try? Like... This is not a side project kind of project, right? Like this is something that I wanted to be able to know the inside of that code. And when you're building effectively like on bare metal, you know, you can optimize all the way down to bare metal versus like when you're using something like Angular or React or whatever. You eventually get to a point where you're trying to do something that it doesn't want to do. And you have to now figure out like how to break open that black box and start optimizing it or working around it. So that makes sense. It, do you feel like having to build it custom over using one of those frameworks where eventually you'd have to get down to the brass tacks to optimize it, did it slow you down in any way? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, we obviously, it worked great when it was a very, very small team. The reality and kind of looking back, right, like it doesn't matter how fast or simple or successful that library is. If it's custom, even if you still have the person that wrote it sitting next to you, right, like ready to help, you, you eventually, you know, you build up a team, right, of, of engineers that they need to be able to go to Stack Overflow and find solutions to the problem. And, you know, they also, like, nobody wants to work on a, a one-of-a-kind kind of framework that they can't take with them, you know, to, to wherever they're going next. So, like, that's that's where, obviously, like, the, the kind of industry weight behind React kind of pulls people into picking that, right, as a framework. We've been moving to React since then. Um, we've also been building, you know, uh, design system and kind of a component library and doing all the things that like you should be doing. That's a perfect segue actually into my next question then. So how did you progress the product, right? How did you mature it? And then, so with the things you're pointing out also, how did you go about building your roadmap and deciding this is the next most important thing to build? I will say it's been, it's been fascinating to watch our front-end engineering team work and kind of pick apart my my weird code that I wrote and standardize it and turn it into something that resembles a modern uh, application. <laughs> uh, and it's it's been fascinating to watch because there, there's, there's a lot of like kind of fundamentally different ideas about kind of data fetching and holding onto state and things like that that like they've had to kind of resolve. And they've done it. Like it's it's been really it's been really cool to watch your, your question about like the roadmap that's a super interesting topic I would say it it changes like how we do a roadmap has changed like every quarter uh, for the last seven years <laughs> and it it very much depends on like who's leading it who wants to lead it obviously like we, you know our product team has kind of matured and very much taken the lead on defining it there's a tension at our company as I'm sure there is at every company where you as a leadership team want to make sure that we're going in the right direction. But you also want the team to feel empowered and trusted, right, and autonomous to be able to make decisions. So that's where, like, us as a leadership team, as an executive team, like, defining principles and values and the mission and business objectives, right? Like, those are the things that, once we have that in place, the teams can then make decisions that say, like, is this, is this in alignment with these kind of foundational opinions that are being given to us. In theory, right, like that's that's kind of the ideal situation where the team the team is given the direction we want to go in, figure out how to get us there. I'm also a big proponent in just and, and we're we're doing this ourselves actually as a design team right now, ensuring that you have backlogs, like specific backlogs, not just like a giant mountain of stuff. Because I think like a lot of people just want to pretend it doesn't exist and then they can kind of play with their tiny pile of stuff over here. But then you have to acknowledge that like there is a thousand things in the backlog and they're all good ideas. It's important that we try to break that down and try to say like, okay, what are the big features, the most impactful features that we want to work on? What are the most impactful kind of tech debt, design debt, product debt that we want to pay down? What are the most problematic and most irritating bugs that we want to solve? Right. And it's not about saying, okay, we're going to do this one this week. It doesn't really matter, right? Like which week or which iteration or whatever something gets done. It's about, is it somewhere 
in the backlog, right? Where you can pull from. So having kind of discrete, smaller, broken down piles of, of work, like backlogs that you can pull from and having a, having a defined ratio, right? Between those things, I think is really important. The difference between saying, we're gonna spend 95% of our time on feature development. There are trade-offs there, right? Same with saying, we're only gonna spend 30% of our time on feature development, right? So like, the more explicit you can be about the ratio between like features and chores as we call them, but that it's really just like improvements, right? And paying down tech debt and bugs, bug fixing. There's no perfect ratio there, right? And no perfect method, but it's something that we're constantly, you know, experimenting with. That is really interesting, the ratio. Like it makes a ton of sense when I when I think about that and the you know the types of backlog that you're essentially so you got enhancements bugs feature work core you know, infrastructure all that stuff but having that sort of defined ratio at least helps with the quick and dirty planning and maybe you decide as a team hey we're going to do more infrastructure this week or hey we're going to do more feature work because because of x reason right but the baseline is that ratio that's that's really interesting i would love for us to to actually be doing that. <laughs> uh, sure. It's a little ideal. Aspirational. Right? <laughs> but to me, that's like, that's the right way to do it. Well, let's, let's switch to team then. So tell me how you went about building your team. And, and I'm interested in what you looked for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you. I think there is, you could say, values or behaviors or, or principles or whatever like that things that you look for right in, in people and for me it's it's a sense of curiosity you know an interest in improving yourself and and in improving the team right in the processes and thinking about that like being able to think deeply about problems i think it's it's important to be taking your time on on things and not not try to plow through things too quickly another big one for me is is humility and just how collaborative you are that's a whole big topic itself right like what does it mean to be collaborative or or humble right and a lot of that's really just about how you disagree and like how you state your opinion on something in a way that doesn't end up with like a stalemate and also like being able to admit when you don't know or that you're you're wrong about something i look for people that are professional that are you know operate in good faith, like that are inclusive, that are able to kind of operate transparently, right? Like in public and versus having kind of backdoor dealings. You know, like to me it's it's important, especially for a product like this, that we capture what what our opinions are and are transparent about what our opinions are. So that six months or a year or two down the road we can go back and say like, oh, this is why we this is what we thought. This is why we made this decision. So, yeah, there's there's a bit of, like, domain-specific, like, first-hand experience that, that I look for, too, right? Like, have you worked with aggravating uh, B2B products before? <laughs> and have you worked on, like, a dysfunctional software team before? And want to use that, you know, and make something better, make, make something better in this space? I bet you've had some interesting interview stories with that question. <laughs> Have you ever worked for a dysfunctional software team? Tell me, tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, everybody's got a story. And I mean, yeah, the reality is like 
a lot of places are dysfunctional and low trust. What's funny is that we're trying to build something that at least puts you on, on a path towards trusting your team a little bit more, right? So like, uh, there's a little bit of, we want to push back gently towards our customers and say like, maybe you don't need that feature. It's going to create this just dysfunctional dynamic between the manager and the engineer, for example, or across different departments. Well, let's switch to scalability, and you and you talked about this a bit in the beginning, but I wanna I wanna give room for the the entire answer around scalability. So, did did you build this to scale efficiently uh, from day one, or are you fighting this as you grow? This is where our entire engineering team will just laugh because they know the answer to this question. <laughs> we did a lot of things that didn't scale. Right, and one of those, as mentioned, was loading too much data up front, right? And that was that was again by design to create an extremely fast interface and extremely fast experience. Another another example, another like intentional decision was being okay with duplication, code duplication. To me, duplicated code is like that's an easy problem to solve, right? Like you can you can as an engineer look at Okay, these two files are 95% the same. But what happens is when you deduplicate code, you're creating a hard problem. You're trading an easy problem for a hard problem because now you have this nicely factored ball of complexity that now you're much less likely to change because you're you now have to look at who knows how many different places to see if it's if it's broken, right? And like that's how a lot of regression tests or regression bugs happen. Right, because you have this shared component that is everywhere, and you only tested it in, in a couple places, but these other places you didn't look at. And that's also how code kind of like calcifies and becomes really like nobody wants to nobody wants to, to change it or is scared to change it because they don't know. And and this is also uh, directly coming from my experience at our last company, where everything was like, don't repeat yourself. Right, like that was the kind of the motto, particularly for Rails. And what that meant was like we had, frankly, that and the the degree of, of code coverage, of like test coverage that we had, meant that the code just wasn't changing. It couldn't be changed <laughs> once it was done. Like it was a massive amount of work just to change small things here and there because you had to look in 10 different places and test different things. So there was and still is, I think, a fair amount of duplication in the code specifically f- to avoid that, right? Like it, it meant that bugs were isolated they were easy to catch we could evolve different pages easily but you know again like this is everything is about trade-offs right like there's no perfect answer here it also meant that we started introducing a lot of inconsistency in the design and in the in the ui from one page to another so that's that's something that we're actively working on and improving as you step out on the balcony and look across all that you've built with Shortcut, what are you most proud of? I think a lot of it is is really about the team. I regularly sit in meetings with various people and I, I still can't believe that we have a team, an organization of this size and, and caliber. You know, the fact that this was this started out as just this hack day project and turned into an organization of this size with so many like sophisticated software companies using it. Back when people had offices, it was it was such a, a pleasure to tag along to like customer meetings with our, our CX team and walk in to 
you know, this this big open, as every office was, open, <laughs> terrifyingly open. But then you'd see like all these people with your work, like on their computers, on their screens. It's like moments like that that make you realize like how how real it is, because it's very easy to forget that. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. There are a couple, I mean, we've made a lot of mistakes uh, <laughs> over the over the years. One of them is, you know, I took it upon myself to write, you know, a caching layer. And it worked, it worked great until we realized that it was creating bugs that were just completely impossible to diagnose because people, you know, put their computers to sleep, the browsers go to sleep, they do very weird and unpredictable things when they're in that kind of half-asleep state. So caching can very easily kind of get screwed up. That to me was an example of how, you know, trying to solve things in a very complex way, like you have to you have to consider what you're getting yourself into with the optimizations that you make. I think that was a, a lesson for me was like, don't over-optimize. Another thing is just, you know, like we've had people delete the database. This is very early on. But what's important is, I think one aspect of a high-functioning team, right, is is like psychological safety. And so people need to know that it's okay to make mistakes and, and, and take risks, right? And know that you'll be you'll be okay. You'll you'll be trusted to learn from that. So what does the future look like for Shortcut, the product, and for your team? The future of the product, I think there's there's a ton left to do, right? Like this this is a never-ending project for us. We've recently added kind of a teams concept. We're not just like adding things to the product, which is great. Like we're what I'm really excited about is the fact that we're we're editing the product project. Uh, the, the the product. Like we're we're removing things from it too. So an example of that is we have a concept of projects and we're slowly replacing that, deprecating that in favor of more specific fields like custom fields and structured fields so that you know people know how it's supposed to be used. Like that was one of the things that uh, I think we would have done differently is, is naming, right? Like naming things is, is hard. You know, we have like a, a fixed work hierarchy that you can you can use out of the box, right? Like that allows you to connect all the little stuff that you're working on back to the big initiatives. And we're working on making that a little bit more flexible. There's a whole bunch of things that happen before and after the execution of work, right? Like there's the planning, product planning, there's the road mapping, there's the capturing of support tickets, capturing feedback um, on the work that you, you release. And so there's a lot of a lot of work left to do to, to solve that better. And I think the core thesis here for us is is that all of that work should all kind of coexist together and connect together because otherwise you have you end up with like silos and miscommunication. So let's switch to you, Andrew. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person you look up to and why. I would say my parents. <laughs> uh, for for one thing, I would also say like I grew up watching Mr. Rogers. I don't know. He's always been a role model for me. I think the way that he spoke about embracing what makes you different and unique, right? And embracing what's different about all of us, 
right? And and uh, he spoke about you know the the concept of a neighborhood and a, a community, and how it's not about everybody agreeing with each other. It's about like the fact that we all can kind of work together and disagree and resolve our differences together and, and just live together. His his message is so runs so counter to like the world that we live in today and I still kind of hold on to that experience of growing up watching his show we've watched it with our son Elliot uh, my wife and I and it's it's still like it's so moving <laughs> to, to watch it um, and it's still relevant you know like it's still it's about stories it's about how you how you feel it's about working through your feelings things that are still just as as relevant today well, well, last question, Andrew. So you're getting on a plane, and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What, what advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit? I would say, this looks cool. Can't wait to use it. My my feeling is, like, don't worry so much about your own, like, developer experience. Like, it's ultimately all about the, the user experience at the end of the day. Like, Nobody uses a product because of the, the tech stack. You know, that was used to build it. They use it because of the way it feels to use it and the, the value that they get out of it. And I would say, like, people tend to, people tend to, to build things for the wrong audience. You know, like, they, they tend to build for their, their peers, right? And people that they, they think are cool, right? And uh, an example is, like, design agencies tend to they tend to build things for to impress other designers not so much to like to achieve the business goals of the client my point there is like don't feel like you need to build something using the the coolest new technology right like it's more about building something that works really well does that feels great that has a great ux that solves somebody's problem really well right it doesn't matter if there's only one person to start if they love it, then that's then you're onto something. Um, but don't don't worry so much about building it in the right way, right? Like if you're using a, a boring old piece of technology, don't worry about it. Like if it allows you to get to the uh, building a great product, then that, it, it's it was the right decision. That's great advice. Well, Andrew, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Shortcut. Thank you, Noah. I appreciate being here. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. 
Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.